Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today I am joined again by my friend John Presnell for a discussion of Brian De Palma. John and I have done many podcasts on Brian De Palma because his thrillers and horrors have an unusual knack for picking stuff out of the headlines or out of the ordinary storytelling of America and giving it amazing depth. Characters get lost in plots that will cost them not just their lives, but their minds often enough. Nobody was as good as Brian De Palma in showing why certain aspects of American freedom lead to madness. And therefore, that there's a grandeur to America because tragedies, horror can happen. It's not just boring. It's not just venal. It's not just good. It's not just nice. There's depth and therefore danger to America. And this is what we want to be talking about today. We're going to be looking at Brian De Palma's The Fury, the 1978 horror movie starring Kirk Douglas, John Cassavetes, and Amy Irving. This was a success, but it shocked people in a way because it was not the sequel to Carrie that they had expected. This is a very, very different sort of movie. And I suppose it's just as surprising because it goes through a bunch of different genres in its trajectory to what you know is the inevitable confrontation. And we will be talking about all of these aspects of the movie and try to show how Brian De Palma uses everything a director can use to show his audience just what is on his mind. And in a way, how strange it is to talk to Americans about the American problems with the creation of a new elite, with the education of a new generation, with the management of world affairs and new American power, which is what the movie really is all about. John, thank you very much for suggesting this movie. I remember years back when we were doing other podcasts, you mentioned this movie. I had never really thought about it before. And now mentioning it again and talking to you about what you saw in this story, I began to think that there was something nagging. I didn't forget our conversations, but I couldn't make heads or tails of the movie. Whereas now I feel I have a much better grasp on it with your guidance. And so I'm grateful for that. And I think in a strange way, it is a timely movie. It's very interesting to look at the problem of elite education and the terrible dangers that are involved in the American government. I feel that it's on our conservative side nowadays that we are afraid of the state. We are afraid of the deep, dark, secret institutions and also afraid of the high and mighty prestigious academic institutions. So in some strange sense, I think it's conservatives nowadays that would look at Brian De Palma and say, finally, a prophet, finally, a man who's willing to tell the ugly truth. Well, I'm glad to be here. So we have 1978, The Fury. It is a kind of a confusing movie. Uh, like you said, it goes through various genres. Describe it is difficult because you have a horror movie like Carrie with all kinds of paranormal telekinesis, telepathy, and all types of other things going on. You have a Cold War spy action thriller at the same time. It's a very paranoid movie. And, and it has, a, I use the term enigma. I mean, it really is a kind of a thing that, you know, you could watch the movie, enjoy it, and then move on. Or you could watch the movie and think it's just silly. You could say nonsensical, unrealistic freakish and not really worthy of my time. But I think if you watch it and you get confused or you kind of experience the enigma and come back looking at it, you can see a lot in terms of the characters and their relationships to each other and the plot and all these kinds of themes about the Cold War, as well as kind of the frontiers of psychology, you could say, with parapsychology and so on. And so there's a lot going on in it. Indeed. And we should tell our audience the plot. 
The Fury starts in 1977 in the Mideast. We have a prologue in which we're introduced to Kirk Douglas, who plays Peter Sanza, a former CIA operative trying to get out of the life of espionage with his teenage son Robin. Peter and Robin are swimming on a beach and coming to shore where they meet Childress, played by John Cassavetes, a friend of the father Peter. The scene of father and son competition is interrupted by a terrorist attack, which at some point turns into a filming of a terrorist attack, which later turns into a complete setup. Childress, who is supposed to be a friend of Peter's from the CIA, is trying to murder him to abduct the son. Peter escapes assassination but loses Robin. Then we cut to 78 Chicago. Peter hires a telepath to find him somebody with special powers who could help find Robin. This is how they find Gillian Belaver, a teenage girl who will discover gradually that she has incredible powers. Gillian has no father and her mother is a very busy businesswoman with global ambitions and little time for her girl. When Gillian begins to discover her powers doing psychokinetic tests, getting a little toy train to move, she discovers also premonitory powers, visions of horrors to come. Her mother, fearing madness, wants to take her to a psychiatrist, but Gillian insists instead on the institute tied to the people who made psychokinetic tests. Here she comes under the protection of Dr. McKeever, who has a connection to Robin as well. Meanwhile, Peter is trying to escape Childress's various henchmen, doing dangerous and sometimes ridiculous things through Chicago while chasing after Gillian. Eventually, he manages to infiltrate McKeever's Paragon Institute for the specially gifted by seducing the nurse there, Hester. Gillian eventually agrees to run away with Peter because she has visions of the sinister goings-on at the Paragon Institute. Unfortunately, in the process of escaping, the nurse Hester is murdered by one of Childress's henchmen. Meanwhile, we see Robin, after having been experimented upon by Childress, who plays continuously on his anger by showing him the footage of the supposed murder of his father by terrorists in order to get Robin to become a weapon in the Cold War for America, gradually goes crazy, becomes more and more jealous of the nurse, who is also maternal and a lover to him, and harder and harder to handle accordingly by Childress or anyone else. This sets up the final confrontation, where Peter tries to save his son Robin and even offer him a friend who is like him in the young girl Gillian, only to discover that his son has gone mad by the machinations of the very institutions through which he made his career in espionage and Cold War politics. They both die during the confrontation, which leads us to the coda, where Childress tries to groom Gillian to become his new student and eventually to weaponize her in turn. Instead, Gillian becomes, it would seem, the titular fury and destroys Childress by a combination of the technique of exsanguination, which she had practiced involuntarily previously in the movie while discovering her powers, and the detonation, the movie's most notorious scene, a body exploding. Thus an end to the horror, with protagonists and antagonists all dead, except Gillian, who is left at the end with an uncertain future. So it's an enigmatic movie. There's a variety of ways to think about it. You could just see it as a kind of a thriller and enjoy it. There's comical interludes. There's all kinds of themes about fathers and sons and parents and children and surrogate fathers. There's even incest, perhaps. Of course, there's the Cold War. You know, Robin's going to be weaponized. Childress tells us that the Chinese and the Russians don't have one. Well, how does he know that? Well, maybe he does know that. I don't know, but maybe they have one too. But regardless, this is what's going on here. 
We see the ruthless secret underworld of deep state actions. I mean, basically, when you see Kirk Douglas running down across the river, you realize this guy has been some kind of an assassin. He's a man of action doing covert war, perhaps. He's a master of disguise. He knows all kinds of things here. So there's the Cold War theme going on. There's the whole theme about waking and dreaming. You know, the movie sometimes does appear as if it is like a dream. So what's the dream and what's reality? What's on the surface? What's the depths? It's a movie about class because it's largely from the point of view of these well-born, wealthy children to the mother who's a global businesswoman, the father who's a global spy. They have this privileged background. They go to the fancy private schools and all kinds of things. They didn't choose to be in this world, but they're in it. The fathers, it's in kind of inspired casting because Cassavetes and Kirk Douglas kind of getting a little bit older, especially Douglas, to be playing an action figure. But they would have been of that generation in the 50s and 60s that built up this international influence that the United States has behind the scenes. It's not a movie about politics, but it is a movie about ruling and the Palmas, you know, in a way kind of showing behind the scenes what's going on there. You have a citizen's point of view for a brief period. You have the pretty stories about the United Nations, and then you have this deep state apparatus going on behind it. And the ending, once again, I think is also enigmatic. I mean, you have this complete destruction of it, you know, but what does this entail? It's surely what is due to Cassavetes. It's revenge. So we have fury there. But we don't have, you know, furies related to justice or somehow bound by law, right? There is no justice in this movie in a way, but there's a lot of revenge and he gets what's coming to him. And so it's cathartic to see him blow up that way. It's also kind of amusing, though, because it's such a just over the top explosion. It really is an infamous scene. Yeah, there's a lot going on in The Fury, and maybe one way to look at how he put this movie together is to look at the talent he used. The story was written for the screen by the novelist John Farris. The music was done by John Williams. He obviously was inspired by the scores Bernard Herrmann wrote for Hitchcock's thrillers. And that, I think, is the first big clue that you need to have some combination of fear and dignity that this late romantic music adapted to cinema by Bernard Herrmann especially delivers. The composer will give him this uh, connection to Hitchcock and to a kind of high-minded thriller, to something that's already prestigious, it's already talked of in terms of art, and therefore can lend credence, if you will, or emotionally at least carry you along in the movie that's a lot more baffling and at times ridiculous, at times ugly compared to Hitchcock thrillers. Then uh, when it came to editing this movie that jumps around from genre to genre, not just from place to place, De Palma worked with his man, so to speak. Paul Hirsch cut at least 10 of the De Palma movies. He was there with De Palma from the beginning, from High Mom and Sisters and Phantom of the Paradise. So De Palma knew that he could trust these guys to deliver. And to complete the picture, the director of photography, there, if you look at this guy's career very briefly, just the 70s, you'll see how Brand De Palma could put all these genres together. Richard Klein made a bunch of these paranoid thrillers of the 70s, like The Andromeda Strain or something that's sort of even more political, Soylent Green. But he also made sci-fi movies, and that fits for The Fury as well. He had shot Star Wars, but also one of the Planet of the Apes movies. And he also made revenge thrillers with Charlie Bronson, who's thing in the 70s, like Mr. Majestic and some of those Death Wish movies. 
So with all the other genres there, if you look at it, Brian De Palma knew exactly what he was doing to give you a movie that's sci-fi, but it's also horror, but it's also a spy thriller, but it's also a revenge movie. It's remarkable how well he put these things together simply in terms of the talent he worked with, what he could get from these men and what they could contribute to a story that doesn't seem to hang together, except in this sense that the through line from beginning to end is this father who is trying to save his son and who learns, in fact, that he has doomed his son because of his past and joins him in death. So that's one aspect of fury. But then uh, the fury, as you s- suggested, maybe the fury is not just an emotion. Maybe it's a being. Maybe it's this young woman who turns out to be more important than everybody else in the plot. And in a certain strange sense, the movie is about her transformation. The protagonist played by Amy Irving, Gillian. Even in that sense, at the end, the movie has this great surprise in store. And so you could say, ultimately, it's... Uh, asking what sort of America will America be? These people that that made America a world power after World War II, they orchestrated the international organizations like the UN, but also international covert wars like the CIA. These people are gone by the end of the movie. They've lost their power. They've lost the, everything that they hoped that they would accomplish. And maybe there's a possibility for this young woman to represent another kind of America. So it's an unusually complex story and it's unusually interesting because of its connection between a world of appearances of ordinary life and a world of power of men doing very dangerous very ugly things and the through line of course is secrecy from beginning to end the political conspiracies the paranormal powers all of them are tied to the power of obtaining other people's secrets and uh, that seems to be somehow connected to the sense, which also, as, as a thriller, as a revenge movie, as something of a tragedy or a horror movie, it's supposed to reveal some ugly secrets. And, and so as we go along through the story, learning more and more about what's happening, we were supposed to become prepared to face some ugly truth, a secret that we would rather it stay secret. We would rather not know what Brian De Palma has to say to us. But then on the other hand, the film is so compelling one shocking thing after another that you feel like you have to find out. That, again, is very much connected to dreams, right? Your experience in dreams is that you're in, in a story that's somewhat secretive but and, and, and fearful even, but uh, you're somehow compelled to be part of it, to go to the next step, to open that door, to go down that corridor, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Mm-hmm. There's a feeling of inevitability to it that the movie reproduces very well and which, of course, connects it with tragedy and horror as storytelling have to understand that some of the necessities underlying our activity, our beliefs, our lives are going to be very dark. So with this presentation of the movie. Now, John, I was surprised looking at this, at the Fury, to, to see how much care Brand De Palma puts into details of storytelling mm-hmm. that seem like, who even cares? <laughs> uh, as you said, uh, there's this is an emphatically a Cold War story because it starts in the Middle East, it starts in Israel, it starts with Arab terrorists that turns out to be staged, and international conflict is presented again and again. But then there are these sorts of moments, like you mentioned, two girls in their bikinis in Chicago walking and talking about their upcoming quiz, and it turns out to be about the United Nations. That's right. 
And there's this hilarious joke where one of the girls asked the other one about the Security Council and our protagonist, Gillian, she says, well, so Security Council, that would be America, Russia, and she can't remember the other ones. <laughs> and that joke is so finely crafted because the other ones don't matter. <laughs> the whole right. point is that it's, it's not the United Nations, it's America versus Russia inside this beautiful lie of the United Nations and its Security Council. It's for security. There is the ugly truth of the Cold War and therefore the possible annihilation of life on Earth. And it's all done in this very, very well-crafted joke that uh, I missed the first time or the first couple of times I saw this movie. Mm. Uh, yeah. Only when you pointed my attention to the Cold War, I began to realize how well-crafted it all is to reward your attention and to show you, you know, it just happens. Like think about teaching kids about the United Nations. Yeah idealistic, nice liberal Americans are all going to have to learn about the United Nations and what it can do for world peace. And they'll all, to become elites, go to model UN programs and all this sort of nonsense. But what are we saying when we're saying that America and Russia are in the Security Council? Just think about that for a minute. Under the idealism, there is this ugliness. And so also with the movie, the, the beauty we see, like the beautiful protagonist and you know, the moral beauty of trying to save your son and so on and so forth. Uh, they hide the terrible ugliness that drives everything to this deadly conclusion. And so I, I, I benefited greatly from your pointing out that there's a lot to be said about why the Cold War matters here. And, and you know, here's another joke, right? They move from the Middle East to the Middle West. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's, you know, you go to both Chicago. on a beach, but yes. <laughs> the beach exactly. is just the, the edge or the surface, right? So the, exactly yeah. right. right. And uh, the movie starts with father and son swimming and they're, they've made it to the shore. They're out of the water. It's, it's, it's the sea, it's the ocean, it's nature in a way that will kill you. Uh, but you've made it to the shore, you're safe now. They're not safe. <laughs> no. they're, they're, they're not going to make it out of that. But that struggle is going to cost them their lives. So the, it is full of this symbolism that rewards attention and that is articulated, as you suggested, through these issues of, of foreign policy, of class, of what the elites of America are, that's the connection there. What is the education that the elites of America yeah. are receiving? What is educating their idealism? What is educating their awareness of American power? What it costs and how it is supposed to be used. Our spy man, uh, Kirk Douglas, uh, Peter, he says to his son, no, your powers can be used for good. That's you right. don't have to be afraid of your powers. Mm -hmm. And of course, that was the belief in America in the 50s and the 60s. Even when you hear John Kennedy talk, American power is for the good and the great transformations of mankind. It'll be amazing. We're going to use those talents, the best and the brightest, right? And so, right. The, and exactly. so we can take, and even these extraordinary talents we don't quite understand, you know, we're going to understand them and then we can harness them to be used as a weapon on the one hand, of course, from Childress, but no, to be used for good. So, uh, so yeah, that's exactly the, you could say, the, the high-minded but childish belief of the, the Kennedy years and this sort of stuff about you're going to help your country and you're going to help the world. You fight any foe, help any friend, etc. And it turns out it means uh, bombing Vietnam for year after year after year and ending up in one catastrophe after another and eventually retreat. You can see why Brian De Palma is, is uh, looking at this story of American post-war power and saying this, this is a tragedy or maybe it's horror. Mm -hmm. We don't want 
bad things for Vietnam. We, did, we weren't trying to be evil. We just did, we used our powers for good as best we could, and the results were horrifying. The distortion, it's an education for a new generation. These people are have paranormal powers. They are indeed the best and the brightest, aren't they? Yeah. They are, yeah. they, they are the, that's what is required. They have to be superhuman in order to fulfill the requirements of justice. You need telekinesis, the power of moving things at a distance, like America runs the world. And you need, of course, yep. telepathy. You need to be able to read other people's minds if you're going to do justice. You're going to know. You have to find out how do you make Afghanistan into a democracy. Well, you'll mm-hmm. take telekinesis and telepathy. <laughs> yes. And uh, if you don't have those powers, it might be another catastrophe. And you're ruining these people's country and their lives for no good goddamn reason, out of the best intentions. These powers... You know, we just don't understand them, right? So they're extraordinary, paranormal. And, you know, and so that's the kind of, we see here this interest in trying to study it and to see what you can harness it. But, you know, throughout there's this real ambivalence here that uh, these powers may not necessarily be good. I mean, you look at young Gillian, she refuses to touch and to be touched. And why? Because her power can cause wounds on other people uh, to, uh, to cause them to bleed. Uh, to bleed to death. There are three people that she bleeds to death, two of whom, one is her father, uh, four people actually, her friend, not really her friend, but her, who who ridicules her and she reveals her pregnancy. She causes the Charles Durning character, Dr. McKeever, to bleed on the wound that he got when the kid fell out, when Robin fell out the window. The other doctor who she greatly admires, the w- woman doctor at the Institute who had given the presentation in class that day, she shows her pictures of Robin. Have you seen this kid before? And she grabs hold of the woman's arm. And this woman has a near stroke and bleeds out through her eyes and her nose and her ears. And we're not really sure what her status is by the end of the They send her off to the hospital. And that's the last we hear from her. And then, of course, Robin, they're trying to weaponize him. So they want to play with his anger. Um, But once again, this gets out of control. The doctors say the drugs can't control him. There's a scene where Robin is pole vaulting, right? And so he's trying to get above the bar. And I guess the bar is going to be placed exceptionally high. And of course, he's competitive and he's angry. He can't quite seem to get above that bar. And we hear the doctors who are on the terrace watching him do this as the boys throw in this temper tantrum that he's getting out of control. We can't control him. The drugs don't work. Uh, We're told that he can connect to these machines and control them. And he's trying to turn his body into a machine, uh, but he's failing at it, or maybe not even a machine, but like a God to somehow get above the bar of, of, of humanity. And of course, it turns out that eventually he's able to even harness some of those powers that he even had just within a matter of days later. And so they've created this monster and they have no idea what to do with them. And of course, that is going to lead to their destruction. What is Childress's, John Cassavetti's kind of whole take on this at the end was, well, you know, we had to do it. It was necessary. Cold War necessity. But then also, as he said, once you do the invasion, then you're going to learn. And then it's necessary to do this and necessary to keep going on and on and on, kind of leading to kind of further catastrophe and so on. And surely belies the ugly reality, uh, uh, the beautiful reality, in other words, of of kind of world peace and harmony. And, you know, it really is just Russia and the United States and proxy wars or covert wars and and the necessity to assassinate or kill or do covert action and so on. And Gillian, you know, I point out she's kind of, we're told that she's able to get herself in this state to see the blank screen 
and then things will emerge in front of her from the future, from the past. Yes, it causes other to bleed, but then this gives her this kind of clairvoyance, uh, a knowledge of things. She's psychic in that sense. And she is a witness. So you could say what the school is teaching her, the United Nations, you know, you wonder what kind of school is this, right? Your history class is United Nations, the global world, world peace, promise of kind of global society or something like this, end of war, uh, perpetual peace. And then, of course, the cutting edge of psychiatry slash quackery of kind of paranormal studies, seemingly innocent, just wanting to understand it. Biofeedback, this notion that your brain waves can control your heart rate, your blood pressure, your, your, you know, your mental states and so on. Uh, it's a great power. It's a, you know, it's a real thing. I had a neighbor who was getting a PhD in psychiatry, psychology, and his, his area was biofeedback. And so I was a test subject for him while he was doing his research. And, <laughs> and so it, it's a real thing in the sense that people really study this. I don't know how real it is in terms of what it actually trains you to do. <laughs> it, but you get this passive sense and that passivity of being just kind of the ultimate viewer or audience or perceiver. And what Gillian needs to see is beyond the, and, and, and she does, she sees the blood behind the United Nations. And she sees the consequences of that. She's already incredibly traumatized and this is only gonna traumatize her further, but in a way she's able to be that kind of witness. In any sense, that could be some possible kind of new future here, at least she's able to kind of take this in, but, but maybe it will just debilitate her so much or maybe she'll just be so filled with rage and fury that she'll just want to destroy everything. That's kind of an ambivalent ending, but her position as kind of audience and viewer in this kind of dreamlike stance. You know, it's interesting. She's in her nightgown for, you know, basically the last one third of the movie. She's running down the street in her nightgown. You know, she's sleeping. There's already a scene where she appears she's sleepwalking anyway when she's at the Institute. Now she's in, is she in a dream? She's on the bus with Kirk Douglas when they're going to the, go find Robin. She's in her nightgown as she watches Robin fall to his death and Kirk Douglas fall to his death. You know, she's in her nightgown the whole time. You can't get any more vulnerable, let's say, than being in your sleeping clothes, right? And in a dreamlike stance. That's a kind of an education. She's not going to get it in the school she's going to, that's for sure. Yes, that's exactly right, uh, Amy Irving. Uh, she plays this perfect audience before a director who is in absolute control of the images that come on the screen. But at the same time, the movie is about her liberation. She does have all these father figures show up in the last part of the movie, but one by one, she loses them. Indeed, eventually, she does not exsanguinate people spontaneously or unwittingly. She, she actually destroys this man on purpose. For the first time, she uses her powers in full knowledge of what she's doing. At least she has grown up. At least she has realized what her powers are and how to use them and has made a decision about that. What exactly the decision is, is somewhat harder to say, but it's the right one. But it does seem to be suggesting that this is brand the Palma's education for a new generation of Americans who are aware of the catastrophes of American power and who yet have to dedicate themselves in some way to being Americans. And I think that in a certain way connects to even to sleep since, uh, as you say, you know, there's something very delicate and fragile about this girl in her nightgown, but it's also about privacy. It's about revealing secrets. It's about facing up to the dark hidden things. These characters all have ambiguous guises 
with her. At first, she seems like she's this modern American girl. Here she is in her school uniform. Here she is in her beach uniform, in her bikini. And she's just enjoying life in a fairly innocent way. Because, as you say, this is about very wealthy people whose lives are charmed. But then it turns out not to be that way. It turns out that she's uh, terrified of touching and being touched. It turns out that she's she's having these premonitions of danger to life, of the blood coming out of people. She's not a happy, nice American girl. No. She's, she's tormented by visions you'd find in Hieronymus Bosch or I don't know what. It's really medieval stuff. Somehow she has to learn to deal with this. There's a depth inside of her that she is aware of only in ways that frighten her out of her wits. Uh, And so far from being self-possessed, she realizes that she needs to get self-control instead. And hence her choice is her first choice to say to go to that doctor who showed her the biofeedback mechanism. That person seemed like they know what they were doing. I want self-control. And there you see of the beginning of a willingness to be educated or to educate oneself, to become an adult. That would seem to be why she is the real protagonist in the story. But, the, but of course, the most dramatic shift in guise is of Robin, Kirk Douglas's, Peter's son. In the beginning, he seems like such a nice American boy, healthy, strong, kind of ignorant, a little shy, even he doesn't know if his new colleagues will like him, if he's going to get along with them. He's uneasy about what friends he might make or or so on. But there are other sides to him. Once you see the movie, you notice that he's incredibly competitive with his father, as you were saying in your synopsis. Uh, that, that shows a certain anger and a certain capacity for violence and for lawlessness, even for breaking with the authority of his father. And that, of course, is also just an aspect of uh, American freedom. It's not a country where people especially obey their fathers. But then it turns out that that has uh, terrifying consequences. And so when we see Robin again, he has been tormented to a point where he is a monster. Uh, he is constantly trying to elevate himself to godhood. He eventually learns to fly, right? He is above mankind, literally now. But it is not an ascent to heaven. It is the preparation for a plunge to his death. It turns out that he is still a body, still mortal. There's a strange combination of um, that early innocence that there is revealed as fragility and mortality. And on the other hand, that early competitiveness, which turns into fury, which turns into a, a desire for power that comes out of fear. The, that is the Palma's picture of American patriotism. The, the evil guys and the evil deep state national security agencies and bureaucracies and so on, they're trying to get him to hate the Arabs, to hate the people who killed his father. It was all a production. It was all a movie so that they can get him to hate America's enemies and therefore fight. And then, of course, the real enemies are the Soviets, the communists, the Chinese, the Russians. That's the, it's the Cold War. It's revealed as to be the real enemy where you need a special weapon, a new generation that is weaponized, a patriotism that is built on suffering and fear and issues in war. That uh, is a replacement or an alternative to the UN liberal global education that the girl receives. So you see the movie is incredibly schematic in this aspect, boy and the girl with uh, manly deadliness and uh, female visions or insight. But then, you know, the relationship between the two, the, the girl, Gillian, she wants to meet Robin because she thinks maybe he'll help her. He's stronger. He's been through more things. Maybe he will help her. He doesn't think of her that way. She, he thinks of her as competition, as potentially an enemy. 
And there, as you said, you know, it's not just that he, now he hates all Arabs because these people have tormented him with that fake video of his father being murdered by Arabs. It's that he's jealous of whoever is around his doctor, nurse, mother figure lover. It's that he is, he can't trust even her because uh, he loves her and love is being vulnerable. And he has been prepared for invulnerability, he has been prepared to seek out of fear, to assume all the power available to a human being in order to be finally safe, in order to finally achieve success. Instead of looking for a mate or a friend, he goes crazy. He kills this woman, he tries to kill his father even again, and eventually he dies absolutely helpless, falling, falls to the ground, all power lost, reduced to a, a moving body. And when his father sees this, he, he imitates it. He, yeah, he throws, throws himself off. off. Mm-hmm. He had tried to save his son and then he joins his, his fate. There you see with his, with, therefore, with the father, Peter, that in the beginning, he seems to be a very successful American, a confident man. He looks good, healthy, strong. He, he's, uh, he talks uh, quite intelligently about how all of this stuff is with the education of his son is going to be done and it's going to be a real success. He's a winner. After that uh, initial sequence, he he becomes an avenger instead. He looks uh, mighty different. He's desperate, picking up a gun to shoot at his enemy children, to take away his hand, maim him, make him vulnerable. um, The American side of his adventure, he, he often looks pathetic. He often looks crazy. He often looks like a man about to lose his mind or who has lost his mind. He's on the one hand doing action hero stunts. On the other hand, he's a a dude naked in his uh, underwear running around town and and taking this family hostage so he can hide out. He he takes cops hostage in their cop's car and tries to explain to them this whole deep state conspiracy problem. But of course, all they see is what we see. This is a crazy man holding two policemen at gunpoint in their own car. He doesn't look like that successful, confident American who tells you what the future is going to be and then you achieve it. In the first minute, you see like he should be president. Like, just Kirk Douglas, vote for him president. He's yeah. obviously in command. This That's is what right. we need. Then it turns out it's not so. And yet he never reflects on the fact that his son's madness, his anger, his destructiveness comes from his own activity. Mm-hmm. So in some strange sense, trying to create this new America where liberal ideals on the one hand give you the UN and on the other hand, the CIA splits the relationship between justice and war, between peace and violence into these two different worlds as far apart as waking and dreaming and therefore makes for madness and therefore makes for characters who seem one way and end up entirely the other way. It's, you know, when you get to the United States, the father who's already being rivaled by his son and the son, of course, thinks he's out of the way and dead. But now the, the father has kind of lost his his powers to a degree and has lost his authority. Right. So, you know, we have, of course, Gillian has no father and uh, and Robin thinks his father is dead. Gillian has surrogate fathers, but one by one, they each have certain issues that she rejects them or even destroys them at the end. You know, Robin, his father's dead. So who does he do? He hooks up with his doctor slash mother, right? So you have this kind of Oedipal thing going on. So, but what perhaps what you have then with education is that while the fathers are busy doing all their secret covert action, you know, in terms of just kind of ordinary education of upbringing, there, there's no father figure, father authority, paternal law, or what in, in the education of these children. And so what does it get replaced with? Well, you, you know, like that's, you know, United Nations, it's just, you know, paranormal psychology 
or you get this kind of harness the competition, but that competition can, and maybe even try to weaponize it, but that itself can, is going to be self-destructive of the kind of paternal figure. And so, you know, you have this kind of crisis, at least as I think as De Palma was kind of presenting the United States at that time with the passing of the, that generation who was busy building up the world, right? And now the second generation coming on who don't have the kind of paternal education, the paternal law, the thing that a father could provide. And, and as soon as Kirk Douglas gets to the United States, right? He looks either like a madman, he can't, he drops his son. Uh, there's even a small scene when Gillian and Peter are coming to the estate, they have to climb over a wall to get into it. Peter climbs over it, and then he's going to grab Gillian to help her get over it. And he can't do it. And in fact, he falls down and that's how they get caught. So he's not going to be able to bring her over. So he's weak. He's weak somehow in this context. And, you know, of course, Cassavetti's character with his arm in the sling the whole time. Uh, he's a powerful man. He's a tyrannical kind of figure, but he surely is not educating. He's conditioning. He's using these kind of scientific techniques to bring about certain conditions in Robin to harness them, to weaponize it. Um, I guess that's a kind of education, but surely not one that a citizen would necessarily want to embrace, right? Or surely would not one that one would want to see for their own children. That's an issue. And of course, even the mother is absent in a way for Gillian because she's globe trekking, right? So kind of the modern feminist, look how free and great her job is, how much money she's making, how much respect she can get, how much travel she can do and all the deals I suppose she's making. Um, so the kind of modern, strong, liberated woman, you know, Gillian doesn't have that. So you don't really have, you, maybe just no parents whatsoever. That was the era of latchkey children or whatever. But there's something I think the Palma's getting at here that there's a kind of a crisis of, of the paternal, I think the paternal authority in particular is the issue here. And so it's either a crazy character. And that's, that's the thing that that interlude where he's running around in his underwear in the streets of Chicago with a gun, or he's dressed up like this old man and uh, with the couple in their apartment and the two cops and so on. It's a comic interlude, right? And so he becomes the father becomes the laughing stock, or the father becomes this kind of evil tyrant for, for children's, right? Or the father is kindly like Charles Durning's character, Dr. McKeever, but Gillian knows he's lying because she saw in her vision that he was there when Robin fell out the window, but she saw that he was there. So he's lying to her. And then of course, Kirk Douglas, he can't carry her over the wall and he wants to abandon her. She's the one who, when, when he gets off the bus to go to the estate, he's going to leave her on the bus, but she refuses to go. So that's not going to work. And of course, Cassavetes is not going to work. And so she destroys him as well. So you have this kind of crisis going on and it's a crisis of education for sure. And some kind of the loss of whatever paternal authority would be in the United States. Like you said, the United States paternal authority is already under question, but now it seems to be almost completely absent and just completely ineffectual. Yeah, I think this is uh, indeed very important. If you think about what education is presented as, the United Nations is uh, institutions and the correlative of institutions is technologies. And you get that with the psychological experimentation. 
you can get technological control of things. The, the generation that was busy building American power around the world after World War II, they were not particularly good parents. Their children did not grow up all right, tolerably uh, decent. Indeed, it led to the most famous crisis of generations in America. So obviously, that's all thematized in the story. It's well worth dwelling on because of this connection on, to, on the one hand, secrecy, uh, governments have secrets, technology in a certain sense is secrecy. You know, first guy to learn something, has control of something, then he can have a, you know, a corporation or a government institution or an espionage agency. And of course, it's tied up with personal life as well, with privacy. When you look at this uh, distinction between the generations, you can see that, so to speak, post-war America first took control of nature. And now, in, in its second generation, it's attempting to take control of human nature. Uh, it, it's America has conquered the world. Now it will conquer the unconscious or the subconscious. It will, it will conquer those powers of our biology that we don't even suspect. You know, there will be a new empire in the land of dreams. This is, you could say, what the danger of, of this attitude. Of uh, Indeed, in the movie, it, it's quite obvious that these parents don't really understand their children and aren't in much of a position take care of them. Even when their intentions are good, which is only partly true, they are too far absent. They are too enamored of their own power or of their own success to wonder how do you actually deal with these children since they are not going to be very impressed with your global success, whether it's in finance or espionage. It means nothing to them. It's not an experience to them. It cannot speak to their drama. So the, the attempts at education are largely failures for that reason. Uh, as I said before, the there is too much of a gap between the beautiful world peace and global commerce vision and the ugly realities that are always experiences for us. Anger, fury, suspicion, mistrust. How are you going to deal with that? You know, these institutions may be pretty impressive, but, but how about these people? How about these children, especially growing up? What is happening inside of them? And so this, this junction between the outside and the inside, so to speak, between the politics and the education has become so great that the only uh, attempt is to use institutions, to use technologies, to use modern control on the, on, you know, the dreams of the children, on their souls, on their special powers. And that is why this movie is not just a thriller or a revenge movie, or, or it's not a tragedy. It's a horror movie because there is this attempt to use science to take control of the soul or the promise of power. And uh, of course, it, it backfires terribly because as we see with this uh, incredibly powerful boy, uh, his, his longing after power comes out of fear, comes out of suffering comes out of a continuous need to deal with his own fragility by destroying any threat. If he's vulnerable, he must destroy something. And that's a very good image of imperialism. America is not safe until Vietnam is a democracy. America is not safe until Afghanistan is a democracy. America is not safe until Ukraine is a democracy. Mm -hmm. You wonder when will America be safe? <laughs> All this power somehow seems to be built on fear and to make people rather than confident, as Kurt Douglas seems at the beginning, it makes them uh, continuously restless, overactive, and uh, gradually going mad because they cannot have what they want. They cannot have that beautiful vision they, that they keep trying to realize through violent means. Well, it, it won't stay beautiful. Like this haunting image that we see again and again and again, human figures exsanguinated. That beautiful image turns to blood and death. You know, it's a very disturbing movie. It, but uh, I hope we have shown that is also very intelligent, very well crafted and deeply thoughtful about how Americans experienced the crisis of the society in the 70s, 
the crisis of the generations in the greatest uh, generation, as they started saying, the 90s and yeah, the yeah, hippies. Yeah. And all of these things are orchestrated with great care. And uh, of course, you, don't, you might not agree with uh, De Palma down the line, but I believe it's, uh, it's a remarkable achievement to show why what people are attempting to do, even when they have good intentions, is likely to lead to something horrifying because they put way too much faith in technology. And in another sense, they're way too desperate that they need absolute power or else they're never safe. You know, and just where it leaves everyone else, you know, you might say just ordinary, we only get a few glimpses of it because this is all taking place within this kind of influential, wealthy, well-born kind of connected circle. You know, you have that comic interlude in the middle there and kind of the streets of Chicago, which, you know, you got drunks, it's, tra- it's 1970s urban America, trash everywhere, you know, drunks walking down the street, street thugs, you know, here's Kirk Douglas running around in his underwear, right? Holding a gun, you know, what is this going on here? You know, people are just like, yeah, another day in the city, I suppose. And then he encounters that Knuckles family in their apartment. The only other ordinary scenes I can think of would be, of course, on the beach. So, the young kids are out on the beach having fun. The rest of the city is just kind of caught in this mire. There's an allusion to the suburbs because this white family didn't do the white flight thing. Like I guess all their neighbors did to move to some place called Melrose Park. So they're stuck in the inner city and it's a, just a shithole. <laughs> just to use a, Sorry about that, but that's the only way to describe it. You know, what does he do? He watches TV and he screams at it. Sounds familiar, right? And uh, he's talking about corruption in Washington. There's a, apparently a, a Muslim terrorist sect that is holding Washington hostage, according to the news. And, and he says, this politicians are mugging us, right? So you have this kind of ordinary complaint. They have no idea about the world of Kirk Douglas or anything, but they do see you know, the, the kind of effects, at least, of, of a neglect upon thinking about this kind of ordinary life of the citizen. And look what their life has become, you know. And then there's Mother Knuckles, the, the, the grandmother who lives with, the, she's, yeah, and they're watching MASH. Mother Knuckles likes Peter. He's the only person, she's one of the only people he tells the true story to. And she believes him. Everybody else thinks he's a crank. And uh, he ties up the husband and wife and Mother Knuckles is there, fixes him breakfast and, and helps him put on his disguise as an old man. And she says, if you see a fed, shoot him. That's what they all deserve to be shot, right? So this is ordinary America, right? And then he goes out on the street. He realizes he's being chased. So he comes into these two off-duty cops in his brand new Cadillac, right? Dennis Franz, right? Got a brand new, check out the, the speakers on this stereo, blah, 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 right? And they're just cruising the street in the in the ghetto. Well, whatever. But uh, uh, he, he carjacks that. And of course, you know, what do they think? We've got a paranoid, delusional psychopath guy here dressed up like an old man. Yeah, yeah, sure, Peter, sure. He tells them the truth, too. They don't believe him. They're like, yeah, yeah, sure, Peter, yeah. <laughs> and of course he destroys their you know the one joy i suppose this off-duty cop has is his new cadillac well not if peter's gonna touch it he's running it into the river right it's interesting so this is what's happened to you might say the the democratic life of america the other only one i can think of is on the bus when peter has gotten together with Gillian and they're going out to the estate to go find Robin, they take a trailways bus and they're in the back seat. And Peter's all distraught because Hester had been killed. And he realizes he's responsible for that. That's another kind of ordinary nurse gets destroyed, right? Right. Because of Peter, right? Just this horrible death that she has as a car runs into her. So he's drunk and he's he's got this girl in a nightgown. He's about 40 years her senior. 
and he's in the back and he's drinking whiskey and he's giving the girl whiskey. And there's a black woman, right? Who's a proper woman who's looking back and she, you can only you just see in her eyes. What does she see? Who is this old lech getting this young girl drunk? You know, this is only in America again, right? What's happened to kind of common democratic life, right? And I guess the kind of uh, even she, you know, because obviously she wouldn't condone this and but just, well, that's just the way it is. That's kind of the helplessness. And they're completely unaware of this whole other kind of thing going on. And even and when it appears to them, it appears comical or paranoid, delusional or lecherous, right? This, that's kind of, you know, you think of kind of like conspiracy theories or something about child pornography or child molestation, right? I mean, that's, well, here's the ordinary black woman looks at it. And what does she see? She sees child molestation going on, right? You know, so... That's how it appears to them, right? And that's kind of the that disjointedness between the, the noble kind of global view and this kind of harsh reality of the realities of the Cold War and the violence that that entails and the secrecy that, that's needed to maintain it uh, and the lack of trust and the paranoia on top of that and the fear and the anger. But then in the middle here, democratic life has been completely hollowed out. Well, you're either on the beach having fun, you're in the suburbs, with white flight or you, you, you in the inner city and all of it's just sleazy, dirty, dangerous, poor, ugly reality. It's a kind of interesting, just kind of brief interlude there, but you can kind of see the kind of cascading effects outside of just this one particular class we're focusing on and their struggles and turmoils. Yeah, that is very well said. Right. Uh, we are again going through something like the 70s, so it's a lot more plausible than it may seem to viewers until they stop to think. Because, yeah, there's uh, there's horrible crime, cities are in a mess, there's trash everywhere, but there's also inflation and the economy is going down and people feel like, oh, yeah, how am I going to make a living? What am I, where am I going to find the time or the leisure to involve myself in any democratic anything? Democracy is just when I can't, uh, I'm finding it harder to pay rent. That's what it is. So yeah, the, this, the, the, the population is debased. People scream impotent anger on the TV. They know they see America on TV, but they can't believe their eyes, but it's driving them crazy. And uh, they can't do anything about it. America is only something you see on the screen. And of course, people feel the exact same way nowadays, that they're screaming mad, but, uh, but it's only America they see on the TV. They don't feel like they can do something about it in the real America where they live. Perhaps they are almost prepared to be the audience of a horror movie. Yeah. Perhaps they do feel that compulsion to see the next mad thing that you can't stop. You got to go through it. In all these ways, I think uh, De Palma is a much more astute observer of society than he gets credit for and uh, a more astute critic of this attempt to rule by controlling the secrets, controlling the imaginations, educating the uh, young elite through, you know, psycho tricks, through control of their unconscious and all of this stuff that is in certain ways still being attempted. If it feels surreal or too crazy to believe, it's just because we're not used to reality. It's all out there. It's all happening. And at some point, you know, we can't say anymore, it beggars belief. At some point, you have to say, uh, yeah, I'm ready to face facts. I am ready to deal with these realities. And that's, at any rate, my interpretation of the conclusion. Yeah. Learning from the suffering of this young man, the girl becomes willing to face reality. In particular, I think Gillian, right? It's interesting. I think you can, she's the most sympathetic character. So I suppose from an audience point of view, the most relatable. And so you can kind of go through her trauma and you can feel at the end her kind of rage or fury. And there is a kind of a satisfaction in that destruction. Now, 
what would be a, the positive, it's not the Palma's job to provide some kind of positive kind of alternative here, but we do see something that to a certain extent, at least on the screen is worthy of just kind of complete obliteration to see John Cassavetti's head, head in slow motion, right? Bloody head just kind of, and that's just how it ends. It fades to black immediately after that. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's all that the movie in that sense has to offer. Tell you that at some point you have to be willing to face something that really is evil and has to be destroyed. That's the, the rock bottom level of reality. It's not the ideals we mm-hmm. go on with, but but it is the rock bottom of reality. And to reassure you, it's reality always must. This is what it is. You have to deal with it. And at least you're not confused. At least you're not in a dream state anymore, right? The whole yeah. final scene starts with her in bed, waking up, finally facing reality, finally above being deceived, finally undeluded. Yeah, you remind and me, I guess, kind of a, almost, you know, because Carrie preceding this, this is the last scene, Amy Irving waking up from a nightmare in bed, screaming, right? And then now we see her in the next movie having to go through that process of, of, of waking up, right? And, and including all the pain and trauma, but then get, kind of getting a sense of, well, what needs to be done? Surely this kind of destruction, fighting of this evil, right? Trying to, to eradicate it. You know, she has the wherewithal to do it at the end. You know, she doesn't want to be touched and she doesn't want to help anybody. But now she's not going to be fooled by Cassavetti's three, three strikes and you're out, right? The third father figure, right? It's not going to work. And of course, she's been seeing what he's been up to and what happened to Robin as a consequence of that. So he gets it. Exactly right. Uh, John, I think this is a good note to end on. I'm glad we had a chance to talk about this at length and to make the case as best we are able for Brian De Palma as an observer of America, as a man trying to help people realize what's going on and trying to offer art, uh, cinema, as Mm -hmm. a better alternative than political ideology and political machinations, Mm -hmm. beautiful speeches and really ugly covert stuff. He tries to put together the inner thing, the soul, even your unconscious, together with the the cosmos, the United Nations, uh, the world out there. And it's a better fit in human terms than the ideology, liberalism of the 70s, or or whatever we would call what we have now. (laughs) So give Brian De Palma a chance, uh, watch his movies, think about this stuff, and perhaps you'll see that American artists should have a better reputation than many ideologues, pundits, and politicians. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) Well, I was glad to be here, Titus. you know, I've, you know, I like to talk about Brian De Palma, so I'm, I'm glad you were game for this movie. It's it's definitely worth watching, and if it kind of hooks you, you know, maybe we gave some things to think about, and maybe it kind of you might be worthwhile looking at even a second time. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, you have not led me astray yet. All of these uh, movies have been wonderful to see and to talk about and to see again, and uh, we should do more De Palma when we sure. get the chance. Okay, sounds good. All the best until then, John. See you later, Titus.